you're listening to the bridge project hello everyone you're listening to the bridge project a platform where we engage in conversations with the movers and shakers from the world of international relations and business this series brings to you conversations with stakeholders dedicated to the india australia bilateral space in this episode we speak to dr erin watson who is a public affairs specialist with over 14 years of experience in policy research and programs Prior to establishing her own boutique consultancy, Erin worked in senior leadership roles at Australian universities and think tanks, where she built a reputation for her public affairs and research. Erin has represented Australia at G20 meetings in seven countries, published reports for the United Nations, and regularly files for the Economist Intelligence Unit. Currently, she is a board director of the Council on Australia and Latin America Relations. at the department of foreign affairs and trade appointed by the foreign minister in 2021 erin regularly appears on the abc australia cnn news 18 india itv news x india and sky news australia we met on the sidelines of the raisina dialogue 2022 and this conversation took place right after erin moderated a fantastic panel on the digital future of the indo pacific and e governance initiatives of countries Our wide-ranging conversation covers themes including the upcoming G20 summit and its opportunities of cooperation for India and Australia, India's foreign policy ambitions, Australia's middle power diplomacy, her thesis on the role of women's entrepreneurship among the Indian diaspora in Australia, and her unique experiences as a theorist who applies her craft on real-world practical problems. Here I am in conversation with Dr. Erin Watson. So welcome to the Bridge Project, uh, Dr. Erin. Very nice to have you with us. Nice to be here, Carl. Thank you very much. So we're on the sidelines of the Raisina Dialogue here in Delhi, 2022, um, and you know there's a lot of discussions on various subjects, including the Russia-Ukraine war, on India's foreign policy position. But what I really wanted to start off uh, this podcast is by asking you: over the last two years, you know, since the COVID pandemic, has there been any position of yours that has radically changed? in these two years any big idea that um, you 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 have had a rethink about i think the big thing that's happened in the last two years is just a rapid acceleration of the role of technology in these discussions so as i mentioned on my panel earlier today um you know two years ago three years ago technology data was a sideline discussion it was a panel you'd often bring in some young people to talk about the issue and then you would um you know so it wasn't really part of the main part of the discussion whereas now what's driving the conversation what's driving the partnerships for Rizina and and these foreign policy discussions is actually technology so it doesn't matter if you're coming at it from a defense perspective strategic perspective yeah. economic perspective um gender perspective technology mm. is such a huge part of the discussion and i think that that's been the big change for me great um so you look you've um, started across the private sector academia government fields which i think is a very yeah. unique uh, background and skill set that you bring to the table so uh, you know for the benefit of our listeners could you maybe talk a little bit about uh, what are the different uh, challenges that you uh, face you know being in these different fields yeah. uh, you know maybe one specific to each of these fields and also also if you could maybe just pick out you know a favorite theory of yours from international relations since you do teach at uh, the university of melbourne if i'm not wrong And yeah, and maybe some interesting case studies to go with it. Um, so very good 
question. Um, you started by asking me about the what? Sorry, the the uh, practitioner academia. Yeah, yeah, and it's a really good question because it's about the silos that everyone operates mm. in. So, what I would say has changed though is that even here today, conversations often led by the private sector and technology sector. So the sponsors here are like MasterCard, Netflix, Lockheed Martin, um, Meta and others. And so so the intersection between business and these geo-economic and regulatory issues I feel like is actually being broken down a little bit at Rizina. So, you know, well done to the team for doing that because that's something I see that it's a really big issue. So you have international relations as an academic field then you have um international relations and that you can practice in terms of bringing people together and so on and so forth then you have um international business um, and they're all really different but actually when it comes to technology and others these these areas are all overlapping Mm -hmm. so it's nice to see that kind of bringing together of the different issues and i think that if you look at the private sector often the value that i have in that space is being able to understand um the international relations debates, being able to understand the current uh, regulatory and public policy issues and then being able to apply them within a commercial environment. I do think that that's good with the private sector. There's been a lot more brought in on that sense from a public policy perspective, but I do think it lacks back in the other direction. So the bringing in of the private sector into academia, and that might be because of conflicts of interest around who funds research and so on and so forth, and academics can be very sensitive to that. So there's probably a little bit more work to go going back the other way, but certainly it's been brought into um, the the private sector, and I think there's a lot of attraction for people working there too because, you know, private sector will will pay the big bucks to get sharp minds to come in and work on their big regulatory issues. Absolutely. Um, theory? Theory, wow. So I think that um, the big thing that stands out for Oh, you could just say you're not a theory person. Is, well, no, I am a theory person because I've got a PhD. So, of course, sure. I believe in theory and okay. the role of theory and how, how it can help us frame debates. I do find that international relations as a discipline, if I may, can be very stuck in this kind of liberal realist binary. Um, and for me... When I wrote my PhD, which was actually in business, and I used both sociology and I used business theory and brought them together, um, I didn't see it as particularly progressive or advanced. Whereas in IR, if you approached it with the theory that I did, whoa, like that's just so progressive. Critical theories. Yeah, critical theories, intersectionality. Um, And I think the critical theories is where I think that's actually where we can get the most value. And part of that is, you know, Australians can learn a lot from this. Come and listen to India. Listen to India's position on China, why it's different to our position on China. And if you can apply that kind of critical theory approach to your practice, um, you will get better outcomes. So um, a big piece for me is always listening and trying to understand. So particularly post-colonial theory, I think it's helpful, gender, intersectionality and so on, Um, Marxism even, they can really help you to navigate the international environment better. Mm. You will be a better practitioner or a better person in business because it gives you that different lens of which to look at the issues through. So critical theories, my favourite. Perfect. And, uh, you know, just to, just to pick out, uh, you know, one buzzword from this, which is uh, to listen uh, mm. to the other side, right? Mm. And which is what critical theory actually encourages mm. uh, rather than the other mainstream theories which are more about explaining the world. Mm. So uh, on, on that front, uh, you followed India's foreign policy trajectory over the last many years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are different schools of thought. One school of thought would be 
uh, advocating for national power through military capabilities or the other uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know school of thought would be about the tech adoptions that india would need to make uh, but there's also a school of thought that argues that india's gdp growth rate is really where the story lies right and india has to grow at north of 8% yes. year on year to kind of achieve these targets uh, so how do you think india's political and business landscape has changed in these past few years and is this in your opinion um, something that india should really focus on more than its military slash technology capabilities well i think india is doing a good job i came here in 20 uh, i mean i had a two year hiatus from india normally i'm here at least every year there's one year i didn't come here in the last 10 years right. pre pandemic um because i i was busy having a baby um and You know, in 20 it must have been late 2019 I came on a listening tour as I like to call it, come and listen to my Indian sure, colleagues yeah. and peers. And the growth in India's GDP growth was around 5%. Mm. And everyone was like this is really bad. So for us 5% would be great. But for India, a country of 1.4 billion people, yeah. it's not good enough. It's not enough to um house to provide jobs for private employment mm. to provide you know, actually education is pretty good, but like what are we going to do with all these people if the economy doesn't have those jobs jobless um, growth is, is yeah yeah jo- exactly so now though your projections are 8% is it higher or is yeah, it i think yeah. it's 8 from the it's last budget yeah yeah, yeah 8% and so to me that's a huge turnaround in a couple of years yeah. and really really promising now i don't know what the driver is of that is it the fact that more people are getting involved as entrepreneurs and startups and finding their own solutions or mm. is it particular sectors that are driving it I actually don't know what's top of my head but that to me is a, is a very big turnaround i mean that's going to be you know that <laughs> taking that into an election how great um but you know so so there's been this real transformation in india yet again um but it's a challenge because the country has to sustain that growth rate yeah. um going forward as well particularly out of the pandemic no absolutely um you know i want to go back to you know the mid 2000s which seems like you know bygone era <laughs> given the current <laughs> circumstances we are in um so i want to like you know uh, pick out uh, you know a phrase that the former australian prime minister kevin rudd uh, had used which is of middle part diplomacy mm-hmm. just wanted to understand from you uh, since you are uh, one of the foremost experts on the g20 and multilateral uh, forums uh, apart from your other area of uh, interest i just wanted to know uh, you know what is canberra's role really in leading this fight in multilateral forums and as a middle middle power state uh, do you think uh, it is underperforming or is it punching above its weight or is it just the status quo from the mid 2000s no that's a really good question again and i think that australia does tend to punch above its weight in terms of its middle power influence um but i think what's more pertinent for australia at the moment is maintaining the international system because we depend on it as a middle power so yes it's like okay well we want to be able to influence as middle powers sure. and how can we do that but also we need to protect that system and i think that's why you hear australia out in the world talking about maintaining the international rules based order maintaining um international systems and inter- upholding international law because we depend on it as a middle power we we, we rely on it for our, so- our own safety and security um you would have read um, or seen uh, alan gingell's book the um, fear of abandonment this idea that australia has always depended on its you know british on the on the british and then the americans and because we have this fear of being abandoned uh, by our you know in the region so it's a great book you should read it um and i think that's still very real which is why the international system is so important to us so going back to your theory question whether you're a realist or a liberal internationalist 
it's important for us because we don't have the weight of a major power. We can't have a realist approach to our foreign policy. We have to have a liberal approach to our foreign policy because that's for us about survival. Yeah. So, which comes down to the same basic uh, um, form in international relations, which is survival of that. Yeah, state. absolutely. Right. I was kind of, I was almost like loops back to realism. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, and but, it's important for us. Yeah. No, I think this is a great segue because I want to now touch upon some of the subnational actors, right? Or that, that's coming to the mm-hmm. fore, and I think the G20 is really. Um, you know, a forum where uh, this really comes uh, into light and, you know, it's very prominent. I know you have kind of advocated for civil society-led engagement groups, uh, if I may, uh, to lay out clearer strategy. Now, for the benefit of our listeners, could you maybe uh, expand upon the diplomacy dividend that you've uh, you've written about uh, in in this context? And it's a two-part question. So, the the, the second part would be, you know, uh, what are some of the focus areas for Australian uh, engagement groups in in the upcoming uh, G20 summit. Yeah, and um, always find it interesting when someone asks you about something that you wrote a couple of yeah. years ago, and you go, "Oh, what was what did I say again?" <laughs> um, which is which is very real. Um, and and maybe the lesson there is for your emerging listeners to, um, if you have ideas, just put them out there and see if they stick. Yeah. Um, so this idea of the diplomacy dividend was really out of the um, G20. So mm. I'm involved with, um, I've been involved with many of the civil society engagement groups, as you mentioned, and um, I think they do play a really important mm. role in both keeping um, the international community, holding to account the international community okay. in terms of the policy positions and proposals that they put forward. We always come back and say, well, have you delivered on the Brisbane goal? Have you delivered on these goals that you've set out? Um, so it does play a very important role in doing that, but also proposing new and innovative ideas and having the voice and having representation of you know, civil society groups, of women's groups, of business groups, of um, think tanks and, and so many more that you have in the, the alphabet soup. Um and this idea of that diplomacy dividend is actually making sure that we can, you know, um, we can actually deliver on those ideas that we put forward, that we advocate smartly, that we advocate to our domestic governments, our international system, and so that we can actually get some kind of return on those efforts as well that we put forward. And what would be uh, one or two key focus areas for the Australian engagement groups? If that's oh gosh, yeah, I mean no. this year it's it's a again. It's a good question because I think that one of the challenges with the G20 now is not about who's going to come up with the best proposals. It's about what watered-down and diluted proposal can we get to that Russia and everybody else will agree mm-hmm. on. So that's the that's the space we're in right now. We're not in a space where we're going to end up with the most innovative and interesting policy ideas. We're going to end up with the bare minimum if mm-hmm. we even get that. Um, but if we were to look at some of those key areas, I mean, I think that for women it's around well, digital for financial yeah. inclusion. It's digital for economic empowerment. It's digital for business so not just you know wouldn't it be nice if the lady down the road could have digital technology for her shop I mean that's a very important piece of it but how are women part of that bigger um, piece in terms of global trade and how digital can be a part of that for them so you know that's a that's a big piece safety of women and girls online is a big issue emerging the Australian government's really pushing that through the G20 and other forums so that's a big emerging issue that I'd like to see embedded into into some of these policy proposals as Mm. well um but again, technology, the rapid pace of change. So as we were speaking about here at Rizina, the metaverse, cryptocurrency, a lot of this is women are left out of. So not only regulating, but also making it inclusive are going to be really important. Now, one of the major talking points, like even at the Rizina dialogue, has mm-hmm. been this Russia factor. And it seems to overshadow almost every conversation yeah. we've had here. 
how do you uh, how would you maybe assess you know the G20's institutional relevance right mm-hmm. in light of the Western world having a different take on Russia's participation mm-hmm. as opposed to the host country in this yeah. case being Indonesia having a, a more neutral stance if yeah. I may. Well, so, the big the big thing is is that everyone's talking about at Rosina about having smaller concepts of groupings, yeah. you know, concepts mm-hmm. of countries, like Minilaterals, Minilaterals, exactly. Yeah. If you want to put it in that phrasing, mm-hmm. and I quite like that. You know, the quad obviously for Australia, yeah. India, the um the US and Japan, that's one of those forums. So mm. I put forward the question earlier to my panel, could you have central finance ministers, could you sorry, central banks and finance ministers join the quad mm. to talk about regulation and inclusivity on cryptocurrency and um, decentralized finance and so on? No one answered that question, but I think that that's a perfect example of how you could use that minilateral of the quad to address some of these pressing issues yeah. that the G20 is incapable of dealing with right now. Mm. Very interesting. Uh, again, going back to one of your uh, works, uh, this one for the UN SCAP, mm-hmm. where you acknowledge the significance of the digital financial services DFS mm-hmm. uh, in the APAC region, or in other words, the Indo-Pacific region. Um, so, with digital transformation, you know, being one of the key themes of the G20 summit in Bali, uh, how can countries like Australia, uh, which has a very mature financial uh, private sector, uh, fintech? Uh, in, in that sense, and how can you take the lead in supporting the agendas of the developing countries in in this space? Well, I think there are elements of Australia's technology and digital for financial inclusion that also needs work. You know, we have big um, regional and remote communities in Australia that may have access, well, who can seize the opportunities that come with. Um, connectivity, but also um, the disadvantaged from not having the best quality internet access and so on and so forth. So I think that that's actually something that Australia also needs to work on. And there's a lot that we can learn from Southeast Asia um, and other regions. So I recently wrote this report, but I tell you what, some of the innovations that are coming out of Malaysia, Indonesia, um, India... Uh, and others. Bangladesh is a big one too that's really progressed in this area. So I actually think we have more to learn from the region than perhaps the other way around. We can support it. Perhaps it comes from investment Mm. um, might be one example. But, um, you know, I think that actually we need to look the other direction on on some of those uh, pieces for financial inclusion. Okay. So, like, that's probably one area of collaboration in in the G20 as well. Uh, So, now, you know, coming to... uh, you know your your thesis, right? For that that you mm-hmm. have uh, you know brought out as part of your your PhD, um, where, where it explores the story of women entrepreneurship among the Indian diaspora. Again, a very interesting, very interesting uh, literature uh, added to the diaspora studies mm-hmm. uh, in in general, right? And I would strongly advise our listeners to kind of check this out, and we link it to uh, the show notes. Uh, can you maybe underline two key findings of yours the, that um, would would actually help uh, people to understand why this constituent, you know, women entrepreneurs in Australia have been able to succeed? Maybe just two uh, key ideas from your... Wow, good question. I think that, um, so with with women, on immigrant entrepreneurs, I yeah, should say, sure. um, which was the original premise to my study, is that there's something that immigrants have which... Australian, like Australian-born people, like me, multi-generational, I should mm. say, really, Australians don't have, and that's international networks. It's multiple yeah. languages. It's business networks, community networks, family family networks are particularly important. Mm. 
and the thing that's unique about India is that global diaspora. So they've got friends who have already set up businesses from the United States. They've got friends who have done it in other places sure. and leverage their relationship with India in order to do that. Um, so I think that's a really key part of their success. Um, and, you know, there's an element as well with this particular diaspora that I looked at. They were very well off. They okay. were high caste backgrounds. They were high class backgrounds. But what was interesting about migrants is that they actually lose a lot of that capital and they have to rebuild it. So they, you know, let's say you're a kid of a parent who migrated to Australia in the 90s and you were wealthy here and when your rupees were exchanged, they, they didn't go very far. And so those families had to rebuild, but they grew up with absolute privilege here. So that's quite interesting. They often lost that privilege and then they had to rebuild it. They're very good at doing that. Mm. Um, but ultimately, they were from those um, relatively privileged backgrounds, very privileged backgrounds. So that was, that was an important piece for them. One thing that a lot of research tends to look at is that uh, looking at class and looking at caste in a negative way. So the way I was trying to look at it was, well, how do they leverage these pieces? Mm. I'm not saying that, you know, you need to be all high class or high caste in order to succeed. But what I am saying yeah. is that there's a framing at looking at these issues through that lens that's very helpful. Um, so, you know, I think I think that, that, that particularly that piece around um, the networks mm. and so on, really, really, really critical Important. part of it, yeah. So looking into the future uh, and staying on this issue of migration or immigration, um, the recent India-Australia interim deal uh, touches upon this very aspect and there's an easing of the visa regulations uh, for Indians moving to Australia. So uh, given the framework of your thesis, how do you see this kind of shaping up? And we'll probably end uh, with this question. Oh, I mean, you know, it's a great thing. Like, Skills transfer between Australia and India is going to be really important to, to Australia as well. And, you know, we have um, a really big problem on our hands and that's yep. that's um, we need to have migration in Australia in order to sustain our economy. It's just as simple as that, really. Our unemployment rates are incredibly low in Australia right now coming out of the pandemic. Um, but also, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a diplomatic, you know, there's, there's a piece there that's diplomatic. It's saying we... We talk about how what a great partner India is, but okay, well, let's give some access to your people, mm. right? That's a, that's a good diplomatic move. Yep. But it's really important for our economy. Um, it's you know the diasporas are there. It's starting to come through the political ranks as well, which is really good. There's lots of South Asians, not just Indian, but South Asians mm. running in like in the elections in Australia, mm. this federal election and state election in Victoria. So you're starting to see that. It's not perfect, but you're starting to see it. Yeah. The medical community, my partner's a doctor, and um, is Sri Lankan heritage, and it's all oh, Sri really? Lankans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so oh. he's like, cardiology, we haven't accepted a white, you know, um, male okay. into into their program in years. They're all South Asian, and they're all because they work hard, wow. they perform hard. They perform hard, they perform very well. So it's 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 these things are starting to change in Australia. Yeah. Great. Okay, so I'm just going to just shoot one statement at you, uh, which is part of our final segment uh, where <laughs> a guest can uh, either say they agree, strongly agree, disagree, or they strongly disagree uh, to the statement. Mm-hmm. So the statement for you, Erin, uh, is Australia should not have joined the AUKUS. If we're going to talk about multilaterals, then I would agree. Okay. Right? I don't particularly have strong feelings, and I'm not going to say, but I agree. I mean, if you want to have minilaterals, mm. the more better. It makes the environment much more complex. Mm. It makes it more difficult to navigate. 
So if you need me to come and help you with your government relations and public policy to do that, call me <laughs> and I will charge you. But, you know, this, yeah. is, this is an increasingly complex environment. Um, so, you know, sure, I would agree. It fundamentally damaged our relationship with France. Um, but here we are. Yep. So, um, you know, on that note, look, I'd really like to appreciate you for taking this time out. Um, in fact, I should just share my listeners that we are fresh off a session uh, which Erin had moderated, uh, one of the most power-packed panels we've had. Uh, but thank you so much. This was such a pleasure to talk to you and thank get to you know Carl. you. Yeah, thank you. And yeah. thank you for tracking me down. And I appreciate, I really appreciate it. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to Erin share her experiences of understanding India's foreign policy and business environment. Also, her articles on G20 make for very interesting reading. So I'll link those in the show notes. You can follow Erin on Twitter at ErinWatsonLim. Please be sure to rate this episode on whichever podcast app you use. Thanks for listening and we'll be back with yet another episode as we unpack the evolution of the India-Australia partnership. Until next time, it's the Bridge Project signing off.